As you guys have been working through becoming partakers of the divine nature, I'm going to go ahead and, and weigh in on that this morning and take a look at that, especially from verse 3. And also we're going to ask the question concerning this, how can Jesus inspire us during times of trial? How can we use his incarnate divine nature to help us as we have our carnal nature that we're trying to succeed in arriving at the divine nature? So you guys have been at this for about 36 weeks, the best I can calculate, and I imagine that you've read this passage more than once, probably about 25 times if I give a conservative estimate. So I'm not going to, to read 2 Peter uh, 1, 1 through 11, but we are going to discuss it. Why am I going to weigh in on this? Well, when the publishers start out and they come up with a new commentary series, they say, well, we're going to look at it from a different perspective and tell you about it from a different point of view. And then the author writes his introduction. He says, I'm going to look at it from a different perspective and tell you about it from a different point of view. And then he gets a guy to write a review of it. And he says, he looked at it from a different perspective and told it from a different point of view. So you will probably get the same thing from a different perspective and a different point of view. But, so what I'm going to do is I want to go ahead and start with verses 10 and 11. And then we'll work our way back to verse 3 and work on some ideas from there. And that way, when they ask if you've ever studied 2 Peter verses 1 through chapter 1 verses 1 through 11, you can say, "Yes, I've studied it backwards and forwards." <laughs> so, picking up in verse 10, "Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing for you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And for this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now these terms, the calling and the choosing, are often used to espouse that we are predetermined what is going to happen to us after death or that we have no choice in the matter that God is going to select who he wants to select. But a careful reading shows that this is not unconditional and it's not an election of outcome. We know when the baseball game is played this afternoon that the winner has already been decided. The winner is decided by the rules of the game, not by a divine providence that says, it may be, I'm not ruling out divine providence, but I don't <laughs> think that's going to apply to the ball game this afternoon. It's determined by the rules of the game. So when we look at this passage, it says, be diligent to make certain about his calling. So we have a choice in the calling. We have to be diligent to make certain that we have understood that calling and provide the necessary uh, application to what we're called to do. And it says, so long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And that is to stumble on your way to the kingdom, as it is picked up in chapter 11 there. But practice what things? What things is he talking about practicing? I think if we go back just a little bit to chapter 5, and he picks up there with what I call the floating staircase. I don't know if you've ever seen a floating staircase or know what a floating staircase is, but a floating staircase is a staircase that you can't see the stringers on. The stringers are what the steps sit on. Now, all, all staircases have to have stringers, but on a floating staircase, they'll use the wall as a stringer and bed the stair in the, in the wall, or they'll use the railing and suspend the steps off of that. But I call it a floating staircase because he's adding to. 
He says, take your faith and add virtue. And add virtue to your virtue, add knowledge. So he's building a case with this stuff. And I say floating because it doesn't happen all at once. We get faith and we add to it. Sometimes our knowledge is exceeding and our faith is weak. And sometimes our perseverance is strong, but our faith is weak. And so it goes on in a variety of ways. But then we all are striving to complete the ultimate, which is the love of God and love of the brethren and love of the world and the sinners that we're called to, to reach to. So that's why I call it a floating staircase. And I compared it a little bit to what's going on in Galatians 5, where he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. And the one difference, the one big difference that I noticed was in Galatians 5, there is no mention of knowledge. And knowledge is very important here in, in 2 Peter or because he says um, in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through, who, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these things he had granted, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So through the knowledge of Christ, we are granted the magnificent and great promises. And I want to look real quickly over at Hebrews chapter 1. So if you could flip just a couple of pages back in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. And he says, beginning in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last of days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he has made the world. The idea being that in times past God spoke through the prophets. He had prophets and he gave the message to the fathers through the prophets and in various portions I don't know how anyone else's translation reads, but that specifically means that he didn't deliver all of the message at once. It was given over time, and eventually it came to the full knowledge that we have today, that is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in, cha in chapter 2 of Hebrews, and picking up in verse 1 there, let's pick up in verse 3. So... After it was first spoken to us through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So what he's saying there is others confirmed what Jesus had spoken. So he spoke to us through his son as opposed to through the prophets. And then there were others who were confirmed by the miracles of the Holy Spirit to have spoken to us also. And we know that to be the apostles because after the time of the apostles when the, the, the miraculous gifts that they had to prove that these things were true had passed away because we had received the scripture that we could read about these things and have a historical documentation of what had happened, then we had the words of the Son through the Spirit. And I just wanted to, to touch on that as we have the knowledge of what God has told us that we can work with here in... Second Peter so back to verse 3 and at the end of the verse 3 he says 
excuse me, I did that completely wrong. It's verse 4. But anyway, verse 4 says, He's given us these great promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this present world. So what I want to look at is how this future promise can be granted to us having escaped the corruption that is in this world. We're going to look at this through the definition of the divine nature. And the divine has two definitions to it. One of them is God. God himself is the divine. And the other is the providence and power, the nature of God, that is, the things that entails God, the innate properties of God are divine. So this is what Blake was touching on last week when we talk about godliness. It's not our godliness, but that we have the understanding of the nature, the power, the providence of God. So this term, the divine nature, is used a couple of places other than here in 1 Peter. It's used in Acts 17.29 when the Apostle Paul is talking to the men at Athens, the Gentiles at Athens, the ones who believe in the gods, the myths of the ancients. And he's telling them that we should not think of the divine properties of God as things like gold and silver. He's preaching against idolatry. So we don't need to be thinking about these things as, as physical things. They're, they're spiritual things, not physical things. And then in Romans, Romans 1.20, we'll go ahead and turn to Romans 1.20. This is not exactly the same word, but it's very, very close in, in the Hebrew. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do have a couple of Hebrew concordances, and I like to look the words up and just see what the, the designations are so that you can see the variations of them. But in Romans 1 and verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, if we take that comma statement out of there, he says, since the creation of the world, his divine attributes, uh, excuse me, his invisible attributes, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Paul, that doesn't make sense. The invisible has been clearly seen? This if we go back to where James read for us this morning in 2 Corinthians, the verse before we picked up in chapter 5, Paul says, While we look at the things which are seen, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the same idea. The things that we can't see are the things that we really are looking for, looking forward to. But the things that we can see and feel and touch and taste are the things that are going away. 
So I want to go a little bit to recent history now. And recent history would be Ecclesiastes 3.11. And if you look at Ecclesiastes 3.11, what our author says there is that the God has put eternity in their hearts, but eternity can't be found by them. And he's talking, obviously, under the sun in Ecclesiastes, that people are not tuned in to the spiritual things. They are looking for eternity, but they're not finding them because they're not looking in the right place. If we go to 1 Corinthians 1, and look at what is said in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are passing, perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he goes on in chapter 2 to say, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And he who is spiritual appraises all things, but he himself is appraised by no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What I'm taking away from that is that there is a spiritual appraisal. And an appraisal means that there's going to be a value judgment made. So if we're looking at spiritual things and there's going to be a value judgment made, that means there are good spiritual things better spiritual things or even bad spiritual things but the spiritual things can be grown can be approved on can be bettered by being spiritual and thinking spiritually and thinking about the things of God and the resurrection that was mentioned earlier is the most important thing of God that is spiritual. So now I want to go on and define nature. That is our, our definition of the divine and take some lessons out of the, the definition of nature. Now I had this idea. We're going to get some beads and we're going to make some bracelets. We're going to have these beads and they're going to say WDJD on them. And we'll pass them out, and it'll go viral. Even before it was viral, it went viral. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the little bracelets that the kids up in Michigan made. It said, WWJD. What would Jesus do? 
it, it just went everywhere. About 15 kids got together and started that. It's, it's kind of a funny story. But I say, not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? So, and how can that inspire us? So, nature. The first definition of nature is the law of nature. There is a law that defines the nature of things. Things are the way they are because God made them that way. And scientists have uncovered the laws of nature, but who enforces them? God enforces his laws of nature. So, the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? And how was it established? Well, the law of Christ is love your God with all your heart, with all your mind and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Humble yourself before God and men. And how was it established? Through the death of Christ. So there we have the law of Christ, and how was it established? And it was established by his humble death on the cross. So the question is, how can Christ inspire us in our times of trial? Well, beginning there, I think we need to reverse that question and say, how can he not inspire us in our times of trial? He is the one who went to the cross for us. And Matthew 25, or Matthew 10, verse 25, tells us that the disciple is not above the master, and it is enough for the, the disciple to be like the master. And if they curse the master and call him Satan, then how much more will they curse the followers? And I want to read from Jeremiah 45. I'm going to read about half of this chapter, so, so be prepared. God is talking to Jeremiah, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. He's telling Jeremiah to say this to Baruch. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you say, Ah, woe is to me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with groanings, and I have found no rest. Thus you are to say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down. What I have planted I am about to uproot. That is the whole land. But you, you are seeking great things for yourself. Do not seek them. For I'm going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as spoil in all the places where you go. And he's telling Baruch not to seek the things of himself because everything is going to be destroyed, but he will be given his life. And I think we can take the same, the same lesson as we go through our trials that Baruch was given. So Baruch, Jesus, and us. And the second definition is the nature of is uh, created by habit, and habitual thought, and habitual action. That you're immersed in something, you become that way. You're all wet because we threw you in the swimming pool. And that cell phone is probably ruined. You were immersed. And if you look at Ephesians 2, in verse 3, 
what he says about being immersed in the things of the world. And that was, be sure I got my scripture right here. Ephesians 2 and verse 3 is what it says. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So by the very nature of being in, in submission to these things, we became children of wrath. And then back over towards where we are in Second Peter, in First Peter 4, Peter brings this around to a little more palatable in our estimation, I would think, a way of thinking. In First Peter 4, verses 4 and 5, when he says, In this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So as we come out of these things, these things that we are immersed in that are worldly, and start to maintain or to develop our spirituality, then we get to this situation where the world will malign us, but we are promised that we will be vindicated at the time of judgment. So what did Jesus do? He sang. He sang on His way to Gethsemane. When He had left the Lord's Supper, they left in, in Matthew, I think it's 26, it said they sang a hymn and went out to the garden. So on the biggest trial, on His way to the biggest trial, I guess, other than the death itself, He sang. How much did He sing? We're really not told. Why did He sing? We're really not told. But Sir Richard said something a couple of weeks ago. that He basically said, before singing was important to me. It really got me to thinking down this line of, of why is singing important? What does it do for us? And if we think about what happened to Paul and Silas when they were trying to, to preach in Philippi, they got thrown in the prison, and at midnight they were singing and praying, and the prisoners were listening to them sing. So I just... I borrowed a songbook and I, I looked through some songs and, and had some ideas that, well, if we're afraid, what do we do? What do we sing? You know, be strong and courageous. Uh, soldiers of Christ arise. You know, dare to stand like Joshua. Songs that I know that I can, if I take a songbook with me, I can think through these things and, and sing them. What if I'm alone? Well, what a friend we have in Jesus. I know my Redeemer lives. Plant my feet on higher ground. <clears throat> what about sin? What about that little red convertible Mercedes or whatever the object of our lust is? How hard is it to covet that and lust after that if we're singing purer in heart? How hard is it as we drive along in our little red convertible Mercedes to be angry with the guy next to us who didn't take off at the traffic light because he was texting when we're singing, Oh, to be like Thee, or the sweet hour of prayer. Or we can sing just to sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. I will sing. So Paul and Barnabas and Jesus and us. So what did Jesus do to inspire us? 
I'm going to say right now, I'm sorry I didn't get into Jesus using the Scripture and reading the Scripture because that is one that is very, very helpful. I didn't use it in this lesson because I just forgot about it altogether until I got finished. But it's there, a lot of it's in Luke. Uh, But what would Jesus do to inspire us? He prayed. He prayed all night. Peter found him early in the morning praying. He prayed at the Lord's Supper in Acts, or excuse me, John 17. He prayed for us. Those who would believe through your word, he said to his apostles. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. When Nehemiah asked about how things were going in Jerusalem, the temple had been built for a hundred years. How are things going in Jerusalem? The walls are still torn down. The gates are burnt up. And he wept. He moaned. He mourned. He says in verse 1 of... Verse 4 of chapter 1. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. And he goes on with this prayer. And he was the cupbearer to the king. And if you go before the king and you're not happy, you can be put to death just for being unhappy. So he goes before the king and the king says, You're unhappy. What's the deal? And he tells him, my city's torn down. And the king says, well, what can I do for you? And then it says in chapter 2, verse 1, the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. So how long did that prayer take? It wasn't taking days. He wasn't taking hours. I don't think he was taking minutes to say that prayer. And if we look at what Jesus does in John chapter 11, right before He raises Lazarus, He says, I thank You, God, that You have heard me. I'm saying this prayer so that these people standing around will know that You hear me and believe that You sent me. Just a few seconds for Jesus to pray. So Nehemiah, Jesus, and us, long, long, diligent prayers and short, necessary prayers as we face trials and temptations. So what did Jesus do? Let's go to Mark chapter 11. We'll have this passage, and then I think we're going to wrap it up shortly thereafter. But Mark chapter 11, picking up in verse 11. Jesus entered the temple. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve because it was already late. And then picking up in verse 15, then they came into Jerusalem and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach. So Jesus went and looked and saw what was going on. And he went away. He knew what he had to do, but he didn't do it rashly. He didn't do it at the end of the day. He waited until the next day, made a clear and conscious decision about what he was going to do, and then did it. And the idea is that we make clear and conscious decisions about the trials and temptations we're going to face. 
We know what our temptations are. We should know what our temptations are. We know what we face. We need to think it through beforehand. We need to think it through so we know. Yeah, when, when that guy cuts us off in traffic, nearer my God to thee, or whatever we're going to sing. And it does, it does get, um, you get callous to it. The same song's not going to work over and over again. You, I, I know from personal experience, those evil thoughts are going to come in. You can be thinking about that little red Mercedes and singing nearer my God to thee and do it at the same time. But anyway, Nehemiah, Jesus and us. Nope, that's not it. I went back on my stairs. Um, we've been promised trials. And the neat thing about it is we're also told we can flee the devil and get away from our trials or we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. And then we know God tested Abraham. Genesis 22 and verse 1. It says, and God tested Abraham. And then, in Judges 2, 22, 3, 1, and 4, it says time and again, I'm leaving these nations to test Israel to see if they will follow me. So he left those nations to test them. James 1, verse 2 through 5, says, Count it all joy when you're, when you're tested because trials bring endurance. So we know we're tested. So Abraham and Israel and us. And yes, I did leave Jesus out of that trilogy. Why? Because it was all a test for him as it is all a test for us. Because we are his brothers and sisters by birth. And yes, that is the next definition of the nature of. Because in Galatians 2 verse 15, Paul says, we are Jews by nature. Meaning that we are Jews because we were born to be Jews. And we are Christians by nature. As we were born into the kingdom of Christ through the waters of baptism. And in John Chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he says, You enter the kingdom, being born again through water and the Spirit. And there was never any question that John 3, 3 through 5, was about the waters of baptism until about 500 years ago. And then men started to create this idea that it was some sort of spiritual birth and that, that baptism was a work and not an essential part of following God and, and essential to his salvation. But I'm not going to really develop that idea much other than to say that and to say in Colossians 1.18 it simply tells us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and in Romans 8.29 it says he is the firstborn of many who will be his brethren. So the final definition of nature is the same as the second definition of the divine. It is the total sum and properties, the characteristics of. Nature is the characteristics of. Jesus showed us that. We show others that. And we show Him that through our actions, words, deeds, and life. I'll just ask, 
Are you sure you have the nature of a kingdom citizen? And if you don't, let's have that discussion as we stand and sing.